Our episodes contain graphic information that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Would you like some murder with your coffee? Welcome to Morning Murders. I'm Nicole. I'm Amanda. And I am Brenna. We are three gals that like to sit around, drink coffee, and talk about true crime. Mm-hmm. True crime. Mm-hmm. We sure do. We these sure are, do. These are true facts. True facts. About us. About who we are. But enough about us. But enough about us. <laughs> Tell us about a murderer. Tell us about a murderer. Sorry. What's happening? What's happening? <laughs> Guys, are we on the upside down? No. I'm just sitting here watching. <laughs> so I'm here for it. <laughs> uh, ladies and beans. For this one, uh, for today's episode, we're going to journey over to Australia for a bit of hiking. Have you ever heard of Ivan Malak? (gasps) Oh! (laughs) It's going to get fucked up, guys. Are you ready? It really does get fucked up. Oh, man. Yeah, and I listened to this episode uh, of Case File, and he's Australian, so it's like... Oh, cool. In the full accent. Oh, I'm not, I so, will not be doing uh, that. Ah, damn it. I was going to say, if I you please, Nicole. Do, I'm not good enough. That is, yeah, that's the one. I, I can only do. do the like really terrible, like a dingo ate my bed. Ba- no, All right, terrible, hold on. Terrible. We're going to get Coco to come read oh, this episode read this for one. us. Coco. Are you going to sit in? Coco. Coco. Okay. So Ivan Milat is also known as the Backpack Killer. He is responsible for at least seven murders, maybe more, from 1989 to 1992, and it took about two years to arrest him. But before we jump into all of that, let us take a sip and go back a bit. So Ivan was born on December 27, 1944. He is one of 14 kids. His father came to Australia from Croatia, and he met his mother soon after. The family lived in what was considered rural Australia and basically kept to themselves. In the documentary that I watched called Growing Up with Ivan Milat, An Insight into the Backpack Killer, some of the brothers spoke about what growing up was like. They really all just kind of spent time with each other. No real friends outside of the family. They were all very close and protected each other. Since they were pretty isolated, they were rather unruly. The kids often did whatever they wanted. They would get into trouble with people of authority a lot. Uh, The family was well known with the local police. They also had guns. Ivan had the biggest fascination with guns, however. Their parents did the best they could with being strict with the kids, but they were also full-time with their own jobs, so the kids were left alone more often than not. At around 17 years old, Ivan started to really lean into the part of himself that liked to cause trouble. Though he was often described as keeping to himself, not very trusting of people outside the family, and one who didn't really talk to many people in the family even, a loner if you will. He would often be well-dressed and throw in some charm with the ladies, his brothers said. Women seemed to always be attracted to him. Blah, blah, blah. He was athletic and said to be attractive. So we have an athletic, attractive loner who loves guns. He would often get into trouble for things like burglary, armed robbery, and car theft. The cars he did have were always super clean, too. Like, super duper clean. That, and him always being well-dressed, was said to be part of his need to be in control. Those were things he could always have control over. Hmm. Boris, the older brother, told a story about Ivan in the documentary. This story is one that gave Boris red flags about his brother pretty early on. 
He said that one day he and Ivan were driving back from work and Ivan had stolen like this sawed off shotgun from work. Boris was like, you're going to blow your hand off with that. And Ivan was like, no, I'm not. And then Boris was like, if you shoot some with that, you'll get six to life. And Ivan was like, no, I won't. Then Boris straight up took the gun um, and be mindful that Boris is also driving the car at the time, took the gun and threw it out the window as they drove over a bridge and it landed in a creek. Ivan was horrified at the loss of his stolen gun, and that was when Boris thought something was wrong with his brother. Another story Boris told, which is kind of important for something that happens later, uh, was when they were a bit older. Boris was with a woman named Marilyn, who I'm pretty sure they got married, um, and they even had a daughter together, and they were very serious, or so Boris thought they were. He soon discovered that Ivan and Marilyn were having an affair. She may have even gotten pregnant by Ivan also. Boris told his father about what he discovered, and his dad was like, you have to kill him. He is a betrayer, or something to that effect. Whoa, okay. But then was like, but then was like, but I don't want you to kill him because he is my son. Well, well then you shouldn't have said it in the first place, because I killed him mid-sentence. I didn't even finish. Um, as we get more into things, uh, you will see an interesting divide that happens with the family and who supports Ivan and who could never possibly imagine doing that. So I mentioned that Ivan got into trouble with the cops, right? Well... And at 1971, he really got in trouble. He was identified by two hitchhikers who claimed he raped them. The women were held at knife point during the attack. However, due to lack of evidence, Ivan was acquitted. <clears throat> 20 years later, things would certainly change for Ivan and his entire family's life. So ladies and beans, it's time to grab your mugs and take a big sip because here come the murders. Now, question. Answer. Um, like, when, do you guys have that anxiety that it comes from if you say something that your lizard brain thinks of first, uh, people are going to think, like, you know, he was like, you should kill him, he's my son. Like, do you ever, like, think about, like, I can't just say the thing that I'm the most worried about because then I'm going to put it into the universe and you're going to do it? Well, sometimes, but then yeah. sometimes I do, no, I better say it because then it won't, ha- or then it will happen. If I, like, don't say and talk about it, then that's when something happens. I get that. It's like, I just, that's the first thing that came to my mind. I was like, there's so many times that I'll, that I will edit myself with what I want to say or what it what I feel in my bones or like a concern that I have because I'm so afraid that I'm going to give you the idea to do it mm. mm-hmm. so I thought about that when he was like kill him I'm like, <laughs> like you, gave him, you literally put it in you put that in I know it's not you know whatever it isn't what happened I even still committed a ton of terrible I things did, yes. so but yeah that's like the thought where I'm like don't you kind of worry about that sometimes like that was just a poll to you guys in the beans <laughs> yeah well I, I from the documentary the way that like Boris was telling that part of the story it's like that's kind of where his dad came from right, right. like that's you 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 know you kill the betrayer yeah <laughs> but please don't do that uh so anyways <laughs> September 19th 1992 was when the first two bodies were discovered Carolyn Clark, who was 21, oh, we have <laughs> not, a friend. Not, not, not spelled friend the same. Spelled, oh, differently. Okay. spelled differently. Uh, who was 21, and Joanne Walters, who was 22. They had been missing since that April after leaving King's Cross in Sydney. The women were from the UK. Two runners in Belanglo State Forest came across one of their decomposed bodies. They were at a point in the forest called Executioner's Drop. The police arrived and found them both with rather different causes of death. Joanne had been stabbed 14 times, one in the neck, nine times in the back, four in her chest. They said that the wound in her neck was in a position where she would have been paralyzed instantly. Carolyn had been shot in the head 10 times. Both had been sexually assaulted. 
In the same forest, more bones were found. It was October 1993 when the police found the remains of a young couple, James Gibson and Deborah Everest. The two were from Australia and had disappeared in 1989. They were only 19 at the time of their disappearance. James had similar injuries on his neck that would have also paralyzed him instantly. He was found laying in a fetal position with stab wounds in the back and chest. It was clear that he had also been beaten very severely. Deborah's skull was fractured in two places as well as a fractured jaw. Her black bra and pants had been cut off and she had been gagged and tied up with her own tights. Shortly after the remains were found, a pack and camera belonging to James were found along a rural highway, like someone had just tossed them out of a moving car at a random point. Clive Small was a superintendent of the case. In the documentary, he said, When the second lot of bodies was found in the forest in October of 93, we had an emerging picture of an offender who apparently was spending more and more time at the scenes. And that's not inconsistent with serial killers. The pattern they often exhibit is one of increasing control and going back and after each murder, reflecting on the incident, getting a level of satisfaction out of it, but saying, in effect, I can do better next time. None of these four had defensive wounds and all showed extreme acts of violence and sexual assault. 20 detectives, 80 police along with crime scene and forensic experts were all put on a team for this growing case. It was so massive that they took over a whole warehouse as a headquarters. November 1st, 1993, more remains were found. Simone Schmidl, a 20-year-old German hitchhiker, she had multiple stab wounds, including damage to her spine. She had been hitchhiking to Melbourne to be reunited with her mother. There were also pieces of clothing found near her that did not belong to her. The search expanded, and then on November 3rd, 1993, the owner of the clothing was found. Aja Hapshid, who was 20, had gone missing with her boyfriend, Gabor Nugabauer, who was 21 back in 1991. They had been buried in shallow graves. Gabor had been gagged and shot six times. He was found fully clothed and had signs that he had been strangled. Uh, Aja had been decapitated. Her head was not found with the remains and has, in fact, never been found. <gasps> I know. Yikes. It's really sad. Uh, in 1994, the case took a giant leap forward. A man named Paul Onion placed a report with the police. He had survived an attack from a man named Bill. On April 13th, 1994, Paul was hitchhiking and had been picked up by a man named Bill, who then held him at gunpoint. Paul was able to escape, and as Bill shot at him, Paul got into a car belonging to Joanne Barry. He identified his attacker as Ivan Malat. There were other red flags with Ivan that people knew and told the police about. A co-worker's girlfriend had reached out to the police and said Ivan had an obsession with guns and should be questioned. Plus, he already had a history of serving time because of abducting and raping women. He was arrested May 22, 1994. He was at his home when he was arrested. Now, all of the family pretty much lives on the same property or at least pretty close to each other. Um, in the profile the team had created of the suspect, they believed he would be a control freak who would have kept property of the victims. After his arrest, the family property was swarming with police. They found backpacks, the sword, guns that matched, all sorts of things. Now, some of the family believes that Ivan was framed. Ivan tells a story that he saw one of the detectives taking two bags from the trunk and then putting them inside the house. Then parts were being found. Because of that story he told the family, some of the family believes the police framed him. Hmm. Now, I think maybe perhaps these bags were containing the tools in which they needed to find the items. You know, because you don't just show up with nothing. 
maybe you did see somebody take something out of a car, but I do not believe it was evidence mm-hmm. that they were placing. Because also, why? What do they gain from that? Because if you can't, I mean, whatever. It makes no sense to me. I could see, try, I could see try put, trying to put it on, because uh, that's happened in, in the past where they'll just kind of blame it on a guy that already has a bunch of things just because they want to get rid of that person anyway. Um, the thing, too, is, though, like, if he gets arrested and put away and then those murders keep happening, that's, like, what they have to right. Atone with right now, mm-hmm. right? Like that, they have to deal with that after the fact. But then, if he gets taken, and then none of those murders in the same way keep happening, then like, hey, Ivan, guess what? <laughs> Unless yeah. the person was like, oh, good, they got somebody else. I don't ever have to murder again. My impulses will stop now. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> so when Clive Small heard about this, uh, he said it's absolute nonsense. And those members of the Malat family who say that should be asked to explain how it is then that Alex Malat was able to give us the backpack of one of the. Victims, and that that had been given to him by Ivan, and also how Ivan's girlfriend at the time was in possession of some clothing belonging to one of the victims, and that that had been given to her by Ivan. There is overwhelming evidence that Malat was the murderer, and they are the simple facts of the case. I can understand how a family would have difficulty believing that a member of their family could commit such atrocious crimes without feeling any remorse. At the same time, I think being a family member, you can tend to live in a state of denial about it. On May 31st, Ivan was formally charged with seven accounts of murder, plus the attack on Paul Onions, along with weapons charges. Australian law prohibited two of the rifles he had, as well as a silencer, which was homemade. Police took possession of these items during the search. And I thought about what you had said during the Melanie McGuire case. You know, there's really no need for a silencer unless you're planning to do something awful with it. Right. Mm -hmm. Why do you have a silencer? Because I want to do target shooting in my backyard in a neighborhood. Uh, no. <laughs> you're in rural Australia. Yeah. There's no one around. Okay. Well, I'm just saying like some oh, ridiculous yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. All of this super affected the family. In the town, people would shun them and yell at them for being a malot and that they all must be as awful as Ivan. Boris, the older brother, even changed his name one month before Ivan was actually officially arrested. I think it was in 2004 when he finally took ownership of his name again. The trial took place in March 1996. Ivan's lawyer tried to play the, are you sure Paul Onions identified the correct person? Ivan's brother Robert or even Walter could easily have been the attacker. That was very upsetting for the family when that happened. They couldn't believe that Ivan's lawyer would do that. I mean, he was trying to create reasonable doubt. That's why he was doing it. But it's the family was super, like, offended and affected by it. And he literally, like, during the trial, pointed to Richard, who was sitting in the audience. Richard had an alibi for all the dates in question, and he never really thought too much of it. Um, He's just like, okay. But the family was like, why would you do that? Uh, The jury did find Ivan guilty of all seven murders on July 27th. The judge, David Hunt, said, In my view, it is inevitable that the prisoner was not alone in the criminal enterprise. The prosecution also believed he did not act alone, that perhaps one of his brothers was also involved and helped Ivan. Another thought was that a woman helped him. There was no evidence of any of that and nothing more was ever pursued. Ivan received seven life sentences, one for each victim, plus six more years for the attack on Paul Onion. He was 51 at the time of his conviction. Then the appeal started. Ivan appealed against his conviction because he claimed his counsel was poor in quality and therefore affected his trial in a way that breached his common law right to legal representation. But the court snapped back and were like, the quality of your representation is not part of your right to representation. So he was denied the appeal because quality was not so low that he would have been better off without any of it. 
Then, in 2004, he tried submitting another application to get an appeal, but it was also on grounds that no longer made a difference to his case, so it was denied. Development Hell is back, guys. Development Hell is the podcast that Richard Humphreys and Kyle Anderson has with another gentleman that's, I'm sure, very lovely as well. I'm very sorry that I don't know your name, but I love that podcast. They do, like, a stupid, awesome deep dive about, um, like, a movie that took forever to get made. They just Mm -hmm. did the Speed Racer, like, oh, and it's so good. And they just, like, they're funny. Their anchor ad is my favorite one. (laughs) (laughs) And because they tell the truth about how we make millions of dollars off of of Anchor. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) They're not afraid to tell the truth. And they're just funny boys, and I love it. And I'm somebody that likes to learn a ton of shit about stupid things. They did a whole thing about Godzilla, and it's so great. And King Kong, like, it's so great. So I highly recommend it if you want to learn about movies and projects and video games and stuff like that that just took forever. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. Nice. Awesome. That's really awesome. How much did they pay you for that ad? Um, (laughs) not enough. (laughs) No, just kidding. (laughs) They paid me nothing. They paid me in friendship because I love them. Ah. Friendship. I love it. Ivan and his sister-in-law, Carolyn, talked a lot. She was Bill's wife, and Bill and her would often visit Ivan in prison. Bill doesn't know what to really think about all of it. He always knew Ivan to be fearless and liked to live on the edge and was always a little too calm. Despite that, though, Ivan would babysit for them and often recommend books to the couple. Ivan was an avid reader. Carol says that she fell apart after Ivan was arrested, and to this day she can't go anywhere alone and feels an overwhelming amount of fear and has anxiety attacks because of how much that this has affected the family. She thinks that he's innocent and would completely spiral if she went down the he-did-it rabbit hole because of their history and friendship and that he had dinner at their home, watched their children, all that stuff would just weigh too heavy on her. So until that day, she continues to visit and talk to Ivan on the phone. I actually have one of the um, recordings that I want to play for you, cool beans and gals, um, just to kind of show his character. He's like talking about this gun violence that's happening and these children that are dying. And he's laughing after everything. I see they sorted that check. You can see they have a problem here. You know, the Russian problem. I say, where did these guns for? They killed about 200 kids. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, they started yesterday. Boris talks about how that's how he's always been. When something really horrible happens, he thinks that it's funny. Ivan would always laugh about it. Um, and like laugh about it, not like a nervous laugh? No, thing? like think it's funny. Mm. And that was another thing that always upset Boris. Anyways, so that's that. It's just like... I don't know when that came on in the on the documentary. I had listened to it a couple of times because I was like, "This is." He just hears, ha, 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 ha. he's just like laughing about it. It made me really sad. So some of the other family member thoughts. So Bill thinks that Ivan, if he did in fact do it, would have acted alone. He says Ivan was also a loner, never did anything with his brothers, and Ivan really never trusted anyone else. Bill also feels that he should have seen signs. Ivan never showed any signs, according to Bill, and all the evidence is circumstantial. Richard, who is one of the youngest brothers, one that was also accused of being the murderer, uh, thinks Ivan is innocent because Richard sees no reason for Ivan to have committed the murders. He said as far as he knew Ivan, he wasn't that type of person. Boris, the oldest, thinks Ivan did it and did it alone. Some of the people on Ivan's side actually have thought that Boris had something to do with Ivan's arrest and conviction, claiming that Boris is just seeking revenge for the affair that Ivan had with Boris's wife. To that, Boris says he has long been done with that, and even if he wasn't, it still wouldn't change the issue that Ivan is guilty of the crimes. 
Boris is very passionate about the horrors he believes his brother did commit and how the family still sides with Ivan. Towards the end of the documentary, he speaks on it, and I wanted to share what he said. I think it's time for them to all stand up and say guilty as convicted, and I'm the one person that does it. These people that are in denial of him really got to get their act together. They really do. I mean to say, this is not just a murder. This is well above it. But I can tell you now, if this happened to one of their kids, one-tenth of the evidence, they would have accused him straight away. They've got to really put the bigger picture on. The bigger picture is seven people lost their lives in a horrific, cold-blooded, terrifying. It's not as though you come in and shot some guy walking down the street. This was terror. Then you've got to move on to their parents and their loved ones. Their lives have been destroyed, and he has destroyed the Malat's lives as well. And that's where I feel very strongly about it. And I don't care if any member of the family ever talks to me again. I've got to express my horror for what he's done. I really do. Boris even told the police in 2015 that Ivan had admitted to killing a taxi driver in 1962. A man named Alan Dillon was convicted of the murder. Boris and Alan both took polygraph tests and both passed, but nothing ever became more of the accusations. So it's like... Alan admitting to the murder passed the polygraph test, and Boris saying that Ivan did it passed the polygraph test, but also it's a polygraph test. Oh, maybe because, yeah, <laughs> polygraph tests are bullshit. They're kind of bullshit. Uh, so to jump back to the officer in charge of this case and his thoughts, Clive Small believed that Ivan acted alone, and here are his thoughts on Ivan. So he says that Ivan was a control freak. The trigger for each murder seemed to be an unstable relationship or one where he no longer appeared to be in control. All the murders occurred when his relationships with a woman was on the rocks. The backpack inquiries happened after he was told he was getting divorced. He was married to a woman named Karen for a while. He had lost control of his family, and so his way of getting that back was to abduct someone and treat them how he wanted to treat them, whatever that meant to him at the time. They were under his control from then on. Clive also believed that Ivan was bisexual. His interest in sex was not about love or even sexual gratification. It was about control, release of a pressure he felt inside, the need and desire to be in complete control. Once he killed, he was calm again, normal again, if you will, released that part of himself for a while. He would even attend family gatherings, but then that need would always come back. There are at least six unsolved cases that may be linked to Ivan. Boris just wanted Ivan to come clean, write a letter or something to family so that they would have some kind of closure. But nothing was ever done. Ivan had created a habit of self-mutilation while incarcerated. I feel maybe that was another form of control, right? Mm -hmm. On January 26, 2009, he actually cut off his little finger using a plastic knife. Um, It was unable to be reattached, and he wanted to send it to the high court. He, like, wanted to mail it to them. Um, he also, yeah, here you go. Uh, he swallowed. Pink is up, everyone. It's a very classy move. <laughs> oh, dear. I mean, I was going to say, like, if, if that's what he did in that time, just imagine, like, we just talked about the Stanford experiment. No oh, shit. God, no yeah. shit he cut his own finger yeah, off. Of yeah, course yeah. he did. Oh, yeah. He did. Yeah. He swallowed staples, razors, any metal thing he could find back in 2001. In 2006, a group known as the Homicide Victim Support Group found out that he had a television and a toaster in his cell. They were outraged and said it was an insult to the families of the victims. The items were removed and he threatened suicide, so he was moved to a safe cell and was watched under 24-hour surveillance. Like Jeffrey Epstein? Oh! oh sorry, I had to. I had to, I had to. No, that man wasn't watched. That's hey, the difference. That's yeah. Yeah. right. <laughs> Uh, He went on a hunger strike in 2011 because he wanted a PlayStation. Uh, He lost a bunch of weight, but he did not get the PlayStation. 
Uh, Matthew Malott, Ivan's great-nephew, murdered a man with an axe in 2010. He was found guilty in 2012 and sentenced to 43 years in prison. Matthew's friend recorded the whole thing on his phone and was sentenced to 32 years in prison. The films Wolf Creek and Wolf Creek 2 are based on some of the murders. Um... John Marsden confessed something rather interesting on his deathbed. Now, he was Ivan's lawyer in the very beginning, but he ended up getting fired. So he said on his deathbed that Ivan's sister helped uh, Ivan commit the murders of Carolyn Clark and Joanne Walters. Mm -hmm, But nothing was ever done about it. Uh, Then, in October of 2019, at the age of 74, Ivan Malat died of cancer. He took with him any secrets he held on to about any unsolved case or any piece of evidence or piece of something that he still had knowledge of. None of it was ever found and it was ever talked about. And it's all lost because he died. And that, my ladies and beans, is the horrific case of Ivan Malat, who was suggested by my friend Jason a while back. So thank you, Jason, for the nightmares. Ladies, any final sips? God, I wrote a couple. One, we're just gonna reiterate this. Don't ever take a fucking polygraph. Oh yeah. I don't know. I don't know why I get so mad about it, but it, that's my like. You're like the death penalty, and I'm like mm-hmm. polygraphs. <laughs> um, I don't like shit science. Okay, I work in science, so I don't like shit science. Um, if you need to control something, get a hobby. Maybe get like a pet or something you can train. And a healthy way, like, that's, yeah, because obviously, like they said a couple times, he's just like, I need to control my life. My mm-hmm. life is someone else made a decision that I didn't like, and now I need to control it. Like, mm. needlepoint. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. it. Um, and then my other one was just, like, good for Boris. Like, blood is not anything just because these people are related to you doesn't mean that you have to stick by their side if they do horrible, terrible things and if you do not agree with what they do. So be your own person mm-hmm. and go Boris. Mm-hmm. Those are my sippies. So he was proven to have done all these things without a shadow of a doubt? Like there was there was medical stuff involved and they were able to prove that he did every single one of these? Well, they, on his property, found all the backpacks and things belonging to the victims. Gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he... And they were able, okay, because that was my thing. I was like. Because he had given away the tokens to people. Right. I mean, my whole, like, wouldn't it just, like, because, you know, like, there's lots of weird murders that happen in camping and campgrounds and stuff, especially in Australia, because it's so far removed from everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it would just suck if, like, he got, also, if the cops, like I was saying earlier, were like, also, he did these, but then there's been somebody murdering people, but we're like, they're mm-hmm. not right. related, you know, that Yeah, I see your point. Yeah. But well, that's why the six unsolved were never actually linked to him, because there was nothing to link him to right. these unsolved cases. It's just similar MOs, mm-hmm. but nothing that right. physically linked him to them. Um, the other thing is now they all have allegiances to each other in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. So there will be siblings that will help you commit the murder possibly and they'll just get slipped under the radar and all that kind of stuff because everyone just kind of kept their mouth shut. Yeah, well, that's something that the police talked about too is like they, the the family knew something might be going on but no one came forward. Like Boris didn't even come forward for quite a while um, with anything. He just kind of was like something's wrong and no one else is saying anything and he just kind of removed himself from the situation rather than coming forward with things. That's something that older siblings do a lot. The oldest sibling more often than not is the one that will remove themselves from the situation because they got raised by completely different people. Mm. That is so true. Yeah. 
I won't ex- I won't like go on about it, but just yeah, my my old my sister, my oldest sister is ten years older than me. Yeah, and we definitely had that conversation of like, wow, that's not we didn't have the same parents. Yeah, but we technically did. So sometimes it's like you can't even get mad at your older sibling for leaving. That's a completely different person that was raised by completely different mm-hmm. people. For like sure. there's you know, so that's a big thing mm-hmm. I hear about a lot in families where there's lots and it's actually there's things about like when there's like the oldest child, the middle child and the youngest, but then there's also a bunch of the stuff in between, but that is a big thing with like grief as well. Like when the mm-hmm. parents die, the oldest will sometimes be like, well, and then just kind of be like, yeah, that's what happens. Like, you know, mm-hmm. there's there's a interesting studies done about that with children and when they are, you know, the order that they were born. And then also like what happens with the oldest versus the youngest and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And lots of middle children kind of get lost in the in the shuffle in between. I am a middle child. I didn't get lost in the. Sh- I kind of um, put on a lot of responsibilities yep. is what I do. But Boris, like the things that he said in the documentary, he just seems like I mean, I don't know him obviously but like the things that he said were really like passionate and kind and he spoke a lot very kindly about the victims and their families and how important life is he just wants people to take responsibility for their actions and come clean about things Mm -hmm. yeah oh beans thank you for going on this uh roller coaster of a episode with us um please reach out chat with us we love hearing from you on instagram and our email um we appreciate you all of you thank you for sharing your coffee with us and writing to us giving us suggestions telling us um how you are thinking about our episodes we appreciate you thank you for the the ratings and the comments we love it we love hearing from you guys um, and we look forward to hearing from you again and more and more and more as we continue doing this little podcast that we like to call Morning Matters. Morning Matters. Midday Muckduck. Midday Thank you for listening to Morning Murders. Remember to stop by every Monday for a new episode. And you can always check out our resources and mental health links in our show notes. If you enjoyed listening to our highly caffeinated conversation, please leave us a five-star rating and check us out on Instagram. At Morning Murders. That's at M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-M-U-R-D-E-R-S. If you have any stories you'd like to hear discussed around the breakfast nook, email us at morningmurders at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Brenna, 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 Let's go. Her life is fucking sad, Bynes. Yeah, Didi does a really good episode on it, and her life is fucked. Also, Didi just did an episode on Chris Benoit, Benoit, and she was like, I shouted you guys out, and I loved it. Oh, that's nice. Thanks, That's very nice. Thanks, Didi. Didi. And just a hot box. Hot boxing. Uh, What? (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Oh, now I want a Hot Pockets, like, it's the Hot Pockets logo, but it said it's Hot Boxing. Hot Boxing. All right. That's cute. He was ass. He was ass. Thank you. You he, can just give me a little like. I know. I should be like, like Anna, give you a cr- <laughs> if you wouldn't mind. That's not what I typed. Autocorrect wrote decamped. Decomposed is what oh, I tried to Oh, no, I, I like decamped. Decamped Decanters. They were decanters. <laughs> they were de- decanted. They were decanted. Dab wombs. 
stab wounds. Damn it. Could find in twenty in twenty thousand one. What?